This episode is brought to you by Nexus Law Group. For those seeking positive career change, Nexus Law Group offers senior lawyers the freedom of sole practice with all of the support and infrastructure you need so that you can focus on what you do best, practicing law. Contact Nexus to find out how you can take the next step towards a more rewarding legal career. Find out more on the Join Us page at nexuslawyers.com.au. You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Are you a lawyer who needs CPD? I've teamed up with Law CPD to make that task easier for you. Law CPD provide premium CPD for Australian lawyers and they offer so much more than just another webinar. Law CPD's courses are online, on-demand, interactive learning. Law CPD are offering Doing Law Differently listeners $25 off of their first purchase using the code DLD25. There are over 100 courses across all competency areas, so visit lawcpd.com.au to find your next CPD course and make sure you use the code DLD25 for your $25 off. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to the Doing Law Differently podcast. I'm your host, Lucy Dickens. Improving access to justice is a common driver for so many of the people who I interview on this podcast, and that's no different for today's guest. I'm joined today by Melbourne barrister Laura Keeley, who is not only a barrister, but also a founder and managing director of Immediation. Immediation is a law tech startup that provides advanced hearing and mediation technology to courts and tribunals, but also an alternative fixed fee, easy secure method of resolving disputes outside of court for everyday people and businesses. Now, I haven't had the opportunity to speak to too many barristers on the show, and I have had a couple of people ask me to interview more. So here you go. Here's Laura. She's here for you. Laura has a really impressive career history, including over 13 years experience in top tier firms, where she has advised listed public and large private companies, governments and not for profits, delivering high value and high risk transactions. And she's now a barrister who specialises in corporations, law and finance and has a broad commercial litigation practice. Laura and I touch on her career history a bit as she mentions that she never intended or I guess never imagined that she might find herself running a legal tech startup. In the interview we talk obviously about a mediation so you'll learn all about what it is and how it works as well as really interestingly how its development has really been accelerated this year as a result of COVID when courts and tribunals of course had to very quickly move to an online format. And if you have ideas for how you might like to do law differently, but you find that for one reason or another, you're just unable to get started or there's something that's holding you back, you'll be really interested to hear Laura's advice. So stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. Now let's hit play. Here is Laura Keeley of Mediation on the Doing Law Differently podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about a mediation, especially, but also because you're a barrister and I haven't spoken to many barristers on the podcast. And those I have spoken to have said that they think that barristers who are doing law differently seem to be few and far between. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I think I do agree with that. It's 
a very traditional profession that loves the history and I guess the joy of the the precedent, you know, mm. wearing robes in William Street <laughs> and all of that. And it, it is really compelling to be part of that sort of sense of lineage that goes back a long way. But I guess what it means is that not many people who've been raised in a litigation or at the bar, I guess, tend to think outside the box. It is happening more, but it's not that common. Well, that's why it's great to speak to people like you who are showing other barristers that we can do things a little bit differently. So I think it's pretty exciting. I would really like to talk to you about a mediation, which is your business, um, your online platform for dispute resolution that you've developed. Now, rather than me try and tell everyone what I think it's all about, how about I let you do that job? So what is a mediation? Thanks, Lucy. So a mediation is, as you say, a, a leading online dispute resolution platform, and it really does two things. We provide a virtual courtroom and mediation tool, which can be used by courts, by tribunals and by lawyers. And then we also provide dispute resolution services on that platform. So I like to talk a bit like it's kind of like Netflix, actually. So Netflix provides <laughs> both a platform and it makes its own movies. So it's a bit of a matrix solution. We are a matrix solution. We provide the scaffolding being the platform that people can do dispute resolution on. And we also make our own content. So we provide our own services to people. So that that's it's. Another way of describing it is a B2B2C business. So we, we provide both the, an entry point to other businesses who are providing dispute resolution services and we provide our own direct-to-consumer. I like that Netflix analogy. I wasn't sure where you were going with that when you started, <laughs> but I get it. It makes sense. Was a mediation always that way? Did you always have the online courtroom arm? So what happened was originally when I was at the bar and I'm not sure if you know this, Lisa, but I, I started out life as an M&A lawyer. So it was all very positive and deal-making and transactional and win-win. And then when I came to the bar, really because I wanted to be on my feet and engage in the academic debate in court, and I'd wanted to do that all my life, that was the positive. The downside was that it seemed that litigation was really uncommercial. And so I was always trying to cut deals for people and could see that they were struggling with settlements. and. The reason for that was they'd often spent way more on the process than what it was worth. So getting back to your question, the original idea was to provide that service of, hey, you can do this before the door of court. You can yeah. resolve this matter. You're sensible commercial people and you know everything you need to know, whether or not you're represented. You can do this with 80% of the information and to provide a mechanism for that to happen where we helicopter in really experienced members of the profession to help you do this earlier. So that was really my idea originally and the thing that we brought to market last year. But the secondary consequence of that was that we built the platform in order to enable that content to occur, that service to be provided. And so then I guess when COVID came along, we said, look, we've got this amazing platform that we've built for this business model, but why don't we give it to the court? Why don't we give it to the bar? because they need it right now. And so it has been a real pivot for us to say, let's provide that platform for general use into the market. But one that we're really pleased with because we're told by our clients that they can do things on our platform that they can't do on others. So it's good to be able to help more broadly than what we originally thought. Yeah, that's interesting. I wondered if that was the case, if it was in response to COVID, because you and I first spoke earlier on this year and 
when I then went back earlier this week to look into mediation again to prepare for this interview, I thought, oh, I didn't know that this was also used as an online courtroom. And I wondered if that was a COVID response, which is really clever. It's really cool that, I mean... Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was always designed for hearings and mediations, but the hearings we had in mind were private arbitral hearings yeah. rather than in-court hearings. But I think so much has happened that's dramatic over the past six months. I mean, we've we've had almost an overnight change to virtual mm. hearings, which when I started talking about this three years ago, people thought that would never happen or it would take a very long time to happen. But the profession has adapted really quickly. But I guess what happened at the, at the start was no one really knew what to do and there's been a lot of academic writing and practical tips about how to do this. But where we were in the market was we'd been thinking about this for three years already. So our processes of how to conduct mediations and hearings online were, I guess, ahead of where the market was up to. So that was something that was of value to some of the courts anyway that we've spoken with so far. Absolutely. While everyone was scrambling, thinking, how are we going to do this remotely? There you are like, yeah, we've been doing this for years. We're ready, we're ready to go. Here you are. Would you like our platform? Well, at least thinking about it, we've at least built something to do it. And it was in its embryonic stages. And, you know, like I said, I think there was a bit of a, a sort of concept that it was too far into the future that people people could see that there were efficiency gains and that it was a great idea. But they struggled, particularly if they were lawyers and had you know, had been in litigation with the concept that you couldn't possibly translate what we do as lawyers into an online environment. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work. But, you know, the one silver lining that's come out of COVID is to show that it can work and so can homework working from home and so can, you know, uh, business transactions without flying around the country all the time. So it's all of these old ideas, I guess, have been swept away and new fresh ideas can come in, which is, I think, fantastic for for our younger generation, for the environment, for for legal practice, which needs to really keep up with industry in terms of its progressive thinking. Otherwise, my fear is, has always been that it will become um, some esoteric thing that only really, really wealthy companies can afford. Um, and otherwise, you know, at the other end, everyone gets what they need through automation, which you know, it's in some ways maybe effective, but in others, kind of sad. Be nice to think that the legal profession continued on as something that was of service to the broader population, not just at the upper end. I get your point about automation. I find, at least in my work, we use a lot of automation. We have our own practice management software and have really, well, we have automated a lot of the work that we do here. But I find that that then frees us up for what I call the more human element. It means instead of spending that time on formatting documents or whatever it might be that the software can do for us, we now get to spend that time on the human relationship. And I think that's a really important part to remember that it's not all about automating and getting rid of humans. It's about how are we best spending our time? How should we best spend our time? That's right. And I think the way that the legal market is moving is that it will become more and more highly qualified people giving strategic advice human to human mm. and that the re- the rest of it underneath will go. But that that is a really important function. And in our business where we provide, where we make the movies, we do the content, the human element is hugely important and we select the best mediators and arbitrators to do their job, albeit in an online environment. I guess the one thing I will say about that is what we can do is 
hopefully eventually ethically use data from outcomes to inform people. And the reason I think that's a value is to stop them getting into disputes in the first place that they don't need to be in, which is a driver of a more peaceful world and has to be good. But, yeah, until that time that we can start to help people educate themselves as to how to avoid it, the humans are important. They definitely are. Let's talk a bit more about that movie-making part of a mediation. So <laughs> this is the business-to-consumer part, right, where you're helping people to resolve their disputes, I guess. How does that work? So the way it works is that you can go onto the website and basically without doing anything else, you can tell us about your situation. And there is a claim form in effect that extracts um, in plain English the cause of action from you, the facts and the circumstances and the evidence. And we try to get people to give us the guts of the problem, which the platform then exchange exchanges with the respondent who you then can do that process in reverse. And what it does is basically take you through a streamlined process to say, these are the things we know from our experience that you need to share with each other and with a third-party mediator in order for you to reach a conclusion. We then go through the standard process of appointing a mediator and signing a mediation agreement and all of those things on the platform, so it's very streamlined. And then they end up in a mediation on the platform And in that mediation, our mediators are told that sometimes they will be unrepresented people. So they're there trying to cut the deal really early. And then we have tools built into the platform that enable that. So, for example, we have a vanilla settlement agreement that is built into the platform so that all that appears are the commercial terms so that a CFO, for example, could agree what the commercial terms of a deal are without being scared that they're going to be tripped up by something and then sign it on the spot. So it's really just trying to streamline that lower end. I mean, it could be used for high value as well, but things that are not worth the headaches and time that we put into pre-court processes and things that don't really need the court at all because they're not hotly contested issues of fact. They're not difficult areas of law. They're just two people or two businesses who've had a dispute. Often it's a human problem underlying the dispute. Yeah. And when you get to the guts of the problem, if you're sophisticated enough as a mediator, you can resolve it. So that's what that's designed to do. It's really empowering people to try to take dispute resolution in a positive and non-adversarial way and just to to reach an agreement. We are moving into the family law space, which is a little trickier as well. That's really in response to need that we see. And I'm sure your listeners would be aware of, you know, we're working with the family court too, but they are just so under strain and trying to alleviate some of the load and help the market there is something that we're pretty committed to doing. It's not the easiest of areas, but it is pretty important, particularly at the moment with um, COVID, I guess, taking its toll on families too. Yeah, even more, isn't it? It's increasing the load on the court. Are all of the people who use this platform unrepresented or do some of them have legal representation as well? We've had all sorts. So it's trying to give people who don't otherwise have an option something that they can do, even if they are unrepresented and to make it easy to understand so that it's not daunting. I've actually worked both for, as in taken appeals for a self-represented litigant, and also from time to time, not very often, but from time to time had them in court. And it's really hard to have a self-represented litigant in the court system because it then falls on the judges and the council to try to help and educate those people in a way. What we try to do is, is take the legalese out of it and say it's really not about the statement of claim and the pleadings and the rules 
and the evidence. It's actually not about that. It's just about the commercial reality that you find yourself in. So it's really giving them a path to empower them to do something that they can do that's not too perplexing. But we've certainly had our fair share of people who are represented as well. And it appeals to, I think, particularly smaller practitioners who might do a lot of different things and they're not litigation specialists, but they can retain the client rather than hand them over to a litigator. I think it appeals to some general counsel who, you know, they know what to do. So it does, it has a sort of place in the market, I guess, where where people are represented, but they just want a really quick and easy way of getting through that dispute for their client. Yeah. And of course, it all happens online through the platform. Yes, it all happens online. So it doesn't matter where people are located? No. In fact, in our very first couple, we had, I think we had a mediation with people, in, and this is pre-COVID, Sydney, Adelaide and Melbourne. And then at the last minute, someone said, I want my CEO involved. And he was in Tasmania and he jumped in. And I guess now with everything that's happened in the past six months, people would say, oh, that's run of the mill. But six months ago when we did it, it was, or even 12 months ago, I think it was, no one was doing that. So the efficiency gains were obviously enormous because the amount of money and time it would take to get all of those people together is huge. You know, that was originally the impetus is to say, well, you, you don't actually need to fly around the world doing this stuff. You can do it online. Um, and then the first part of the process to get you there really just streamlines it to make it more efficient. What kind of response have you had from the people who have been using it, the people who have been using your movies, I guess, the this, our, this arm of mediation? Look, it's been good. I mean, the reality is that, I mean, that's a much slower burn than yeah. the provision of tech because it's not just providing a different tool, it's actually providing a new process. And so we always knew that that part would take longer. We're committed to it because I think fundamentally it helps support the rule of law if you give people accessible options. You know, I have had advice from very experienced business people that say it's actually really difficult to do that, to go direct to market, B2C, yeah. just do the tech. But I feel compelled to continue to try to provide that solution. The people who we have helped through that have said, you know, that they really like it, it's effective, and certainly we've had mediations that were not resolved in pre-trial standard mediations resolve on the platform. So it's definitely a work in progress of how best to help people who, particularly if they're unrepresented, but so far so good. And often it, the sort of pure theory that we had that people would come onto the platform and then the platform would send the response to the respondent and all of that would be automated. We're not really there yet. Like we still need to engage with the respondent and or let the applicant engage with the respondent because we're just not saturated in the market enough yet that people can just get an email from our platform and go, sure. I almost built it for the end game and now we're sort of going backwards um, down the line. But it definitely has been well received. The platform itself has grown and changed enormously since March because, you know, of the, the uh, the volume of people that we've had come on and the, the problems that we've had to solve in a short time frame. So we're really pleased with that. I mean, we've been doing, sometimes we're doing development cycles twice a week, which if you know anything about tech is pretty fast. So, um, you know, that again happened way faster than we anticipated because we didn't expect to go from zero to 2,000 users in five days. Sort of necessitated a lot of, a lot of development. Yeah. So what did that development process look like from when you had this idea How did you go about finding the people to develop it? How did that all happen? Well, we had some original people engaged when it was just going to be an app, but then we moved beyond the idea of an app to an actual platform 
which would be a scalable platform. And then we went out to tender and we found some brilliant former Google engineers based in Los Angeles who are still with us. A fellow by the name of Sean Montgomery was the lead engineer and still is. And he literally built it. So when I think back now, um, we put in a, you know, specifications and we said, this is what we want to do. And then we guided him through what we wanted. And it largely came out of my head. I'm like, I want this video platform that enables people to go into private rooms and then have a settlement deed on the platform. And this is the workflow that I want to have at the start. And so he literally just, well, they built it and then we iteratively made it come to life. And then since then, we've now got a whole team of developers who build different parts. But it was certainly an interesting experience for someone who has no engineering background. (laughs) My science degree was not engineering. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, did you then or do you now speak the language of those technicians or are you kind of explaining what you want in layperson's language and then they do the technical stuff? The coding? Yeah. I am now speaking the language way more than I was at the start. So at the start, it was very much I would tell them what I wanted and they would feed it back to me and then I would adjust it or we would adjust it. We had a team of people. Now I can have a sensible conversation with our CTO where he says, you know, we have these variety of technical architecture options and I still have to say what is that, what are the options and what are the pros and cons, but I'm not, you know, I understand what they're talking about in much more, with much more sophistication than I did at the start. Um, It's certainly a steep learning curve and you need to surround yourself with people who do get it because you are a bit exposed. I mean, it's like people trying to draft legal agreements who, you know, are bush lawyers and they think that they know what they're doing and I clearly didn't. And I knew that I absolutely didn't. So in some respects that was easier than knowing a little bit. I knew nothing. So. Yeah, I completely relate to you. I work very closely with our software developer to build our practice management software and I walk into his office and I say, this is what I can picture and this is how I would like it to work. And then he goes back and tells me all the technical aspects of what's actually required to produce this and so much of it still 10 years later, goes straight over my head because I don't quite understand it. But it's okay. We all, have our, we all have our strengths. And as long as between the two of you, you can communicate and work out what it is you're trying to achieve. That's right. And I think the thing is that lawyers shouldn't be scared of this because they're smart people and they understand processes and they understand how to deploy experts. And I've always thought my job was what I need to do is find the right expert to tell me how to do that thing. And that's what lawyers do all the time. Even in M&A, they find the tax expert and the IP and, and they then integrate all of that knowledge into a working document. And it's a bit like that. You just have to make sure that you've got the right people and then that they're prepared to work with you on that project. So I don't think lawyers should be scared of it. It's not that different. It's very black and white thinking. It sort of is or isn't. And I think the only grade comes up, and this is something I really struggled with, when there's a bug and then they would go searching for the bug. And they would have to replicate it. And I'd be saying, well, is it fixed or not? And they'd say, well, we think so. And sometimes they would be able to fix it because they they could identify it and they knew what the fix was and they could test that the fix had worked. But sometimes it was like, well, we think it's fixed, but we don't really know yet because we can't 100% replicate it. So that was really hard to sort of get to grips with because there's so much grey there's a lot more grey in in that part of it at that end. Yeah, that's so frustrating when you know that there's a problem and they can't replicate it and they say, tell us the exact steps that you've done before you saw this bug. I can't, I just know that it happens. You need to go and find it. (laughs) And then what they did was they deployed thousands of hours of, of people testing 
to try to replicate it. And then sometimes what that would do was produce different errors and they'd say, I think we've got the error, but, it, you know, anyway, we've we've enormously improved the stability and performance of the platform through going basically through hell to, to get there. So that was <laughs> certainly an interesting experience and one that's not for the faint-hearted, but I'm glad that we're on the other side of that now. Did you imagine that you would that your career would take you to life in a legal tech startup? Was that something you, that you envisioned? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, people ask me that. Someone said, did your mother think that you were going to be an entrepreneur? I'm like, no, I totally didn't. What happened was I had this idea and I think being a person who was sort of raised in a in an environment, not that my parents were activists or anything, but there was very much as we were raised with social justice at the forefront and I think just fundamental principles of equality. And so when I came into this system and I could just see that it was not working, I just felt compelled to do something. That's really what drove me. And and I, there was a bit of me that thought, well, if I don't do it, who will? Mm. And that worried me. And then I had the idea. And then once I'd had the idea and I thought, this is really valuable, then I think the competitive, ambitious part of me thought, right, well, now that I've had this idea and I think that I can do it, I will really be frustrated if somebody else did it and I didn't follow it through. So it was sort of that competing fear and also ambition, not so much fear, but concern that people were missing out on access to the system. And that sort of led me down this path. I thought that I was going down the whole barrister QC, maybe judge, that was the path that I'd chosen. And this was my final career. And I'd made the decision to stop being an M&A lawyer to go to the bar which seemed quite radical at 38 um, to do that. But, you know, I had this dream and I didn't want to let it, you know, I didn't want to become a commercial partner of a law firm and have always thought, oh, you know, that's not why I started law. But I had no, I had no idea that I would be <laughs> in this position. Um, but when I look back, I guess the one thing I will say is I can see how it happened because of the skill set that I had, which was corporate business, then litigation, and also becoming a sole trader. And I think it was sort of all of those things together and having done directorships and been exposed to commercial business through due diligence processes over years and years, I think that it was because of all of the experience that I'd had that I was able to see a path to execute rather than it was my lifelong dream to become a startup entrepreneur, which is frankly pretty hard. Yeah. Well, from what I know about any startup, let alone tech or legal tech in particular, yeah, there's there's definitely lots of challenges. But your comments about access to justice that you mentioned just then in terms of uh, coming from an activist, you know, having kind of an activist upbringing, um, those have shined through in almost everything you've said to me today. It's so clear that that's something that you're really passionate about is helping other people with access, improving access to justice. And I was reading an article that uh, an interview your interview in The Australian Lawyer that you've got published on your website or you've got a link to on your website. And one of your comments was about this. You you spoke about the need for a mindset shift and to move away from this adversarial approach of having a winner and a loser. And again, that shines through really clearly in what you've said to me, but also the way that this platform has come about and what it is that you're trying to achieve. I think that's right, Lucy. And And like I said, my parents were not political, but they, you know, they were in the teaching professions and we were very much raised that, you know, at Christmas you go and you give gifts to Salvation Army and you do the right thing by people and you try to help where you can. And coming into the law, that's partly I think what drives most of us, most of us to start a legal degree is that we want to help, we want to do something. And then you end up on this pathway of helping big business and 
it's very intellectually rewarding and great. But I think what happened when I landed back at the bar was I wasn't always working for large corporates. I was working for real people again. And that's when it really hit me that I thought, gosh, this is, it's actually really awful. And I hadn't had that career where I was in legal aid and I was doing all that stuff at the coalface. And so it was later in life that it came back around and I saw, you know, what how much people were suffering. And these are not people at the lowest end of the food chain at all. These are your, you know, normal, average, educated part of the population. And they can't access the system properly. So if they can't access the system properly, I don't even know what's happening to the people who are disempowered or don't speak English or have issues with mental health. I mean, I haven't even begun to tackle that. That's just something that's such a vast problem. And I'm sure there are people well more qualified than me, but it is something that drives us. And that's why I haven't wanted to just sell tech to courts. We're keen on selling tech to courts, but committed to try to make the movie making part of our business work as well. Yeah, which is a challenge, isn't it? Because not only are you offering, like you say, it's a whole different system. People don't know anything about this yet. And if, especially if they don't know anything about the legal system, what they probably expect is what they see on the movies. And you're saying, well, there is a different way. And so you have to not only explain how your process works, but convince them that they should use it and that it can help you. So for the people listening, most of the listeners here are lawyers, legal practitioners, people working in law. How can they use your platform or how can they send people to your platform that they might not be able to help? In what way can we help you to spread that message? Well, I think for the lawyers who are listening, where you see a client who maybe needs an alternative solution, which is to go straight to a dispute resolution process, it's something to have in your toolkit. And we've always said to lawyers, this is just one thing. It's not always appropriate. And there are some clients who need to litigate. But I guess it's just being aware that if someone comes to you that can't afford you at all, that we are a point of referral and we will help people who literally it's non-commercial for them to have legal advice. Or it's just one of the things that you can offer. So you normally when you give that advice to a client, you say we can litigate or we can do private mediation. It's just another option available. And, you know, we've got brilliant mediators on the panel who are very experienced and who have agreed to our pricing model, which is fixed. And I think that's the other thing is we try to fix the price so that people don't have surprises. So yeah, they should have a look at it and ring me up if they want to talk about it. Always happy to chat to members of the profession because I think, you know, they have so much to offer. Every time I speak to a lawyer about it, they say, oh, have you thought about this or that? And, you know, it's great to to chew the cud. And the prices are all on your website and you can even, because I did this last night, you can sign up and log in and have a look around and see how it works. Now, we've got this demo mode thing, which someone very clever came up with who wasn't me. Um, I guess yeah, the other thing I will say is if people want to try the platform, they can use it in their own work. So we offer it, you know, to lawyers to use because the custom documents where you can co-draft any document and then have it signed on the spot is really cool. And that can be used in any environment. It doesn't have to be dispute resolution. So if people want to try the platform for one-off matters, it's not expensive. And we're looking at opening up subscriptions to it so that people can use it like they use any piece of software. We really started with enterprise software, but we are moving into opening that up to lawyers as well. Yeah. Well, Netflix is subscription, so it makes sense. That's exactly right. <laughs> so it's mediation.com is the website if you're listening and you want to go and check it out. And of course, I'll include the links in the show notes. And my last question for you, Laura, which is the one I always finish on, is what advice would you give to someone who wants to do law differently? I think that if you know 
that you have a good idea, you owe it to yourself to try to explore it and not be afraid. Because I think our fear response as lawyers gets in the way often and our sort of cerebral part of our brain needs to really override that and go, I know I'm having a fear response because I'm thinking outside the square. However, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen is it fails. So it fails, but the best thing that could happen is I make a difference or an impact or I have a great idea. And so as lawyers, we're conditioned to look for risk. We're conditioned to really try to stay in our swim lane. So I I think it's just about that self-talk of, well, hang on a minute, is my bias towards thinking that this isn't going to work or I'm going to fail because I've been conditioned by my profession to think I must do what everybody else does and to then try to self-talk your way out of that. I did that and just thought, well, I can see that there's something here, so just keep going. But if you listen to the first response, which is, oh, that's never going to work, they're going to think I'm an idiot and it's going to fail and I may be out of a job and... (laughs) it's going to be a disaster, then nothing will ever change and we won't have innovation. So try to push through that bit. Then I would always validate my idea because I think some ideas are great ideas, but it's also really difficult to execute them unless you think that you can capitalise that and execute it well. And it's really difficult to capitalise and get something funded if it doesn't have enough traction or it's something everybody else is doing already. That's actually, it's really hard to take it from an idea to commercialise. So just make sure that you sort of wedded to the concept, you think it's got legs and that you've broken through the barrier of your own brain and then you know where to from there. Sounds like some really good advice. The comments about breaking through your own barriers, one of my mentors has said to me, if you've got a great idea and you're kind of holding yourself back, you need to flip it and tell yourself that you always have an obligation to share that or to go and do something about it because of the people you can help or you know whoever can benefit from that idea. And I think that flip in switching your mindset that way, yeah, it's really powerful. And the way we think about ourselves and our own ideas, I think is often one of the biggest barriers to making change. Absolutely. And Anna Lazinski is a huge proponent of this, is that lawyers are really smart people. We are very resourceful people and we can make things happen. So we've just got to make sure that we don't, you know, our history of our profession is very much one that's constrained by the past. And we just have to put that to the side for the sake of innovation, because otherwise it will get left behind. So yeah, you've got to go for it, but just recognise also it's not for the faint-hearted And the biggest lesson I learned was once I'd taken someone's money as an investor, it doesn't leave you or didn't leave me. And the pressure, the weight of that responsibility is not easy to carry. I think it's particularly for people like us as lawyers who take our obligation seriously. It follows you around. Yeah. You've got to make it work for them. You've got to make it work for them. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. I've really enjoyed talking to you and learning about mediation, and I wish you all the best. It looks like an amazing platform. I think you've done a really good job. So well done to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk with you. That's all for today's episode of the Doing Law Differently podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to do law differently and you're looking for some guidance and inspiration to help you along the way, then get your hands on my book. It's time to do law differently, how to reshape your firm and regain your life. You can get it on my website, lucydickens.com.au forward slash book or on Amazon or Booktopia where you'll also find the ebook versions too. 
Don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast and be sure to tell your friends and let other people know too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you.